This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Your chance to hear expert advice, real life stories. And we were broadcasting live from the Newbeat Tea Majla. So yes, of course, we were talking tea, some of the health benefits, um, some of the histories and a very expensive blend as well. Also talking trauma, Elaine Machen on hand to talk about why two people might have the exact same experience but suffer from trauma in very different ways, plus some of the treatments that are available and could and should you be manifesting your future. We were speaking to a certified executive coach, Samara Pope, about the do's and don'ts, the pros and cons of manifesting your happiness, plus marking World Hearing Day. What should you be doing to protect your ears? I am sitting with a gold-plated teapot and a beautiful cup of delicate jasmine tea. And I couldn't be happier, to be honest. Very relaxed. We've got some amazing experts joining us this hour to talk tea. And I want to know, how do you take yours? Talking health now, Dr. Mitten Destarka is with us, clinical dietitian and the founder of Simply Healthy Living. Dr. Mitten, how do you take your tea? Definitely not with milk and sugar. Oh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about why. We've had a lot of people, I mean, what we call in, in, the, in England, like, tea you know three you know teaspoons of sugar and you know all of that and you know there's there's a time and a place for everything and moderation but when we're talking healthy tea what are some of your top picks I actually come from a land I mean my my parents love tea in my home I've always seen a tea from let's say India Assam Darjeeling China and it was such an experience for them it was like a symbol of hospitality for Mm -hmm. them it was an experience Mm -hmm. And sometimes my aunts and uncles, I used to see, they would add like three, four spoons of sugar, lots of milk, and they're brewing it. Now you lose all the, what you call the valuable nutrients from the tea. Mm, You're breaking hearts all over the UAE. Okay, if you add a splash of milk, that's fine. But the Indian way of making tea is boiling the milk, adding the sugar, and then brewing it, brewing it, brewing it. And that's when all the harmful effects start. Your gut really goes for a toss, messes up your gut, uh, releases a lot of acids in your gut. And then you have your heartburn and the bloating sensation that you suffer from. Whereas some teas can actually help with bloating. Uh, yes, absolutely. If you talk about dandelion root tea, peppermint tea, that is all very good for your digestion. So after a meal, if you want to have a cup of uh, peppermint tea or a dandelion tea, actually that will get rid of your bloating or if you have any digestive troubles. So yeah, there are some teas that are anti-inflammatory properties, have got a lot of polyphenols, and they have healing properties. I love this. Tea is medicine. I was just having a, the boutique here at yeah. uh, Nation Tower. It's just absolutely beautiful. There's, you've got the new boutique as you walk in, and you can pick up these little glass domes and smell the teas. And there's, you know, there's rose. I'm having jasmine now. Lots of green tea. Now, green tea is something I still don't feel like I've grown up enough to drink. I think I've had a bad cup of green tea in the past, and I need the newbie guys to re-educate me on it. And it has had a, something of a moment in kind of Western culture over the last 10 years. But in other cultures, it's, you know, huge historical significance. What about the health benefits of green tea in particular? I would say green tea is one of the most, I would say, the best nutrient profile of any tea because it's got this compound which is called as EGCG and this has uh, anti-inflammatory properties. So it helps in an anti-aging process in your body. Keep talking, keep yeah. talking. <laughs> it helps in uh, probably balancing your insulin. It helps in uh, keeping your blood sugar levels in control, reduces your cholesterol levels. So this particular antioxidant has a lot of health benefits. And that's why we say drink at least two or three cups of green tea a day. What about, because the caffeine factor, I think a lot of people have concerns about. It's what, you know, thinking about, you know, is a tea going to keep me up at night? Absolutely. Uh, so, so then you won't have the green tea at night. That's a morning tea that you're going to have. What about in the evening for calming? Because we've had a message um, here saying I'm a regular green and caffeine mild tea drinker um when should i be having it and when can kids start drinking tea that's from santino right now i think sleep is such an important part of of our lives that people are missing out nowadays we don't prioritize sleep anymore our bodies need a minimum of seven to eight hours of sleep but we have such busy schedules or once you're back from work you're probably unwinding sitting Mm -hmm. in front of netflix And you compromise on your sleep, right? Now, in total, you need seven to eight hours of good sleep and you need uh, REM sleep, which is at least about 90 minutes, deep sleep, at least about 60 minutes. But we're not getting any of that. Sleep will heal your body. Now, that's why it's important that at bedtime, you take some nice healing teas like chamomile tea or lavender tea. 
Oh, that's that will help in inducing the sleep. You'll sleep well. That also helps in comforting you and reducing the anxiety. So that's answering uh, Vinny's question here, saying I'm generally an anxious person and only drink black tea. Should he consider other options? So those would be perfect. Not black tea, then chamomile and lavender is the best kind of tea to relax and sleep well. You mentioned there kind of regulating insulin, um, talking about bloating. Are there any other teas that can be really beneficial for other conditions or illnesses, Dr. Mitten? So for example, I give spearmint tea to a lot of my women clients who uh, suffer from high testosterone levels or hormonal imbalances you know Mm -hmm. you notice uh, uh, symptoms like acne on the face or facial hair that's because of high testosterone levels so there is science and uh, research that spearmint tea helps in reduction of that excessive amounts of testosterone and balancing the uh, the hormonal profile. Dandelion root tea is good for your liver cleanse. So obviously, that cl- cleans your, your skin. Your skin looks glowing. Uh, again, peppermint tea. Uh, we have lemongrass tea, fennel teas, uh, licorice root teas. So I think Newbie has a good collection of all the wellness teas that they have mentioned here. We're going to be exploring some of yeah, those. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, we're going to talk about how to brew the perfect cup of tea for taste. But, you know, if you are putting boiling water on these, you know, really, you know, beautifully picked and preserved teas are you effectively going to kill some of the health benefits through the brewing process or can they be quite hardy not really no if you're having a good quality tea then you're not worried about it but if it is one of those teas that you're not sure of how it has been harvested how Mm -hmm. it has been preserved and how it has been packaged then the fluoride content of that tea would be much higher and when you're brewing it for longer periods of time then you are absorbing more of the fluoride and we really don't need so much fluoride in our body because that can cause leaching of calcium from your bones that can cause um, dental fluorosis it can cause osteoporosis arthritis joints ache and pains a lot of nutritional deficiencies associated with that and now to think of it why is it that our grandmas and grandfathers used to have osteoporosis arthritis they're having milk they're Mm -hmm. having the calcium but yet they have osteoporosis arthritis it's because their calcium was actually being depleted off because of the fluorides and the way the tea was made brewed with the milk and the sugar so there was no really medicinal properties that they were uh, able to achieve so dr mitten do you approve then of my beautiful delicate supreme jasmine tea that's in front of me absolutely i okay. just had a bowl of a cup of uh, jasmine tea and i'm feeling all we've energized. passed the test we're glowing here <laughs> uh, dr mitten for anyone that wants to contact you and find out more about simply healthy living um, about working with you as a clinical dietitian what's the best way of getting in touch so you can get in touch with us on instagram and it's called simply healthy by mitun and our numbers are 04-3544-549. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so really much. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. 26 minutes past three. It is Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. And it's an absolute pleasure to be joined now by Sanya Muller joining us from New BTs. I just want to say thank you for having us today because this has just been the most peaceful, relaxing little slice of heaven in the in the UAE. We're here with a newbie team majlis in Abu Dhabi. Um, tell us a little bit about this space because I walked into the boutique this morning and I said, okay, well, where, where are we going to be broadcasting from? And a door opened and here we are. Tell us about the space we're in. Firstly, thank you so much, Helen, for taking time out and, coming to, and coming to our team majlis. Um, well, this is a passion project of our chairman. Uh, at the beginning, there were people who called it an absolute madness, but it's truly uh, the love for tree, uh, the love for tea. And Newbie has a very clear mission. Uh, we always want to reintroduce, um, you know, the co- the fine quality tea and revive the love, uh, the world's love for it. I think what this space kind of says to me, idea of meeting and ritual which i think we you know we kind of we're always so busy now you know it's grabbing a quick a quick cuppa it's it's not necessarily taking the time to appreciate the flavors and that the quality that you've just been talking about how do you think this space really encourages that aspect so sipping fine tea is like meditation one needs to really invoke their senses and immerse in the experience and our aim to create the tea majlis was to have an opulent serene space where people could actually come in relax and truly enjoy the fine character of teas and what makes this majlis very special is obviously the offerings the teas some of our teas are so rare uh, so limited in quantity and 
truly only available at the tea munch list specific to newbie really? these blends are you know sourced from very very high altitudes and very hard to acquire um, and they take a lot of care to preserve its character mm-hmm. so that's what makes it actually you know so valuable. So, so valuable and so special now just to paint a bit of a picture i feel like i'm in a five-star hotel in nation tower it's, it's, it's incredible um we've, we're on beautiful cream sofas you've got this kind of odoniel um cushions we've got lots of gold touches light fixtures how much you know how much care has gone into creating this serene environment tell us about what's been happening behind the scenes before opening so every little detail every little piece of architecture and design that you see in this boutique is uh, very thoughtfully chosen uh, even if you enter the boutique and you see the undulated ceiling it mimics the ripples created when you brew a fine cup of tea and when you enter the majlis, you see these beautiful light fixtures suspended from the ceiling. They actually resemble tea leaves. Uh, so everything was custom made. And if you look at the walls, you can actually see some of the bespoke teapots from the Chitra collection, which was specially curated in the loving memory of our chairman's late wife. And it right now is the world's largest private teaware collection with almost 3,500 objects. Wow. You've also got some beautiful teapots on display in the boutique as well. Um, so a good chance to come along and have a look at these absolutely gorgeous pieces of art, functional art in a way. And um, we had a message here from, um, from Glenn saying, can anyone come and see the Majlis? That's a great question. So who is this space for? So definitely you can come in, pass by at the boutique and have a look at the Majlis. Uh, currently the offerings are you can book the space. So we have the entire Majlis divided into two sections. We have a business setup where you could actually have meetings and conferences. And then we have a more relaxed lounge seating. However, we do it up if you wish to book the entire space. This afternoon, Sandy, thank you so, so much. We're going to be learning more about the tea in particular um, just after half past three today. And I want to know, how do you drink yours? I'm currently having another cup of jasmine and it's absolutely delicious out of a gold-plated teapot. So if you are serious about your tea, if you're a real connoisseur, or perhaps you just want to learn a little bit more about this ancient, ancient art, brilliant opportunity. As we said, Newbie Tea is open now at Nation's Tower and the Tea Majlis here to welcome you. Vanessa Rana is with us today from New BTs. Thank you so much for welcoming us to the Majlis. It is just a real haven of obviously tea, but peace and tranquility and just it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous space. So thank you so much, Vinay. You've been with the company for 14 years. Tell us about your I guess your, what you've learned along the way, some of your favorite tea facts. Oh, well, uh, tea has always been very interesting and uh, fines are like so living. And before I start about uh, anything about uh, Newbie, the most important aspect about this company is the 100% of the profit of Newbie goes to charity. Wow. Though, though our chairman, uh, Ms. Setia, he doesn't like to speak about it, but since it's a British registered charity, everything is in black and white. So uh, some of the charitable activities which, you know, the group or uh, what Newbies have been, uh, have been doing is we have built autism center in London. We have built robotic research center. Schools and colleges are, are running uh, under the brand of Newbie. And we have educated more than 50,000 girls in India. And then all kind of disaster relief activities happening globally is all been done by the uh, brand. And not only that, Ms. Setia believes in spirituality. Tea is spiritual. So we have built, you know, mosque, we have built temples, we have built churches all across the globe. So this is just um, his contribution uh, in terms of tea, in terms of giving back to the society. I never knew. I never knew. And to be honest with you, when we arrived today, I, you know, we, we came into this beautiful, beautiful store here at Nation's Towers and you've got these glass globes where you can lift them up and smell the, smell the, the tea leaves from, from underneath and you've got on display, well, so a, a teapot that I've never even seen before. Talk, talk to us about some of the special artefacts and, and functional art you've got here at the boutique. 
You see, everything uh, what, uh, you know, Ms. Setia or Newby has been doing is absolutely unique, right from preservation of character of the tea. And interestingly, you know, what Ms. Setia says, tea is like a beautiful woman. To be, appraised, uh, to be appraised for its, uh, you know, character and not for the appearance. And uh, we have some of the very unique teapots. So in that we have uh, something which is called as amber, amber uh, cups, which are amber is what we've collected from the sea beds. Wow. And they've been specially casted in silver for newbie. And then we have hand painted cups and saucers. They have been uh, most prominently designed by our designers and we have got it all curated for us. We have some of the objects which are from 19th century silver plated objects. Tea was in the era where these are all hand chiseled objects which you can, uh, you can find in this boutique. Beyond this, as you know, you know, Chitra collection, which is a collection of the rare tea objects dating from, you know, uh, 10th century BC to the 19th century, more than 3,500 objects. The valuation of this collection roughly estimated is around $800 million. Oh my goodness. Speaking of pricey teas, I understand there's one in the world that costs around 20 million a kilo. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> what uh, is it and why? Uh, it's called Da Hung Pao and... Uh, very limited quantity of tea it grows in china and it is sold on auction by the chinese government and you'll be surprised to know there's a tea called as you know the concept of preservation is is the basic uh, ideology of philosophy of newbie mm -hmm. so preservation comes our factory in india which is located right at the source the tea is bought within 15 days of its plucking and then we have temperature control system, dehumidification system to preserve the character of the tea. And not only that, how it is to be packaged, how it is to be transported. So all those functionalities have been done to bring a refreshing taste of garden to the cup. It's amazing to think about the process that's gone into the cup of tea in front of me. It really, really is. Can we talk about some of the rare tea blends that you've got here at Newbie? Can you talk us through some of the, the origin and the flavour profiles? Uh, you see, here in this boutique, uh, we have created some very, very unique and very special blend. And even for the, uh, you know, uh, for the Middle Eastern culture, how the uh, tea are. And uh, there's a tea called as Zafrani tea. And Zafran, as you know, is known as saffron. Mm -hmm. And we go to the rarest place to get that saffron. And that saffron comes from Gulmarg in Kashmir. So it is sourced and then it is finely blended. And I can guarantee you no tea brand in the world can give you the kind of blending which has been done to be. Secondly, we have something called as a Erasam. And it is the rarest and the finest of fine teas Assam has ever produced because there's something called as golden tip and more the number of golden tip is the finest is the quality of tea. So in rare Assam, what we have done, the kind of, you know, research we have done, the kind of sourcing we have done, I don't see any other brand even coming close to us. Uh, again, there are again various other brands which we have, uh, you know, something like as Quab is there, mm -hmm. uh, a tea called Quab, a tea called Jannat. Quab is, is a dream and uh, Jannat in English means, uh, you know, paradise. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's a tea called Romance which we have just launched. I cannot explain to you that what a flavoring and what a taste of Ooh, tea it is. I think I need to go and have a little, a little smell of this. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, you mentioned there the kind of the Middle Eastern. What do you notice then about some of the most popular teas for this region? You know, what are some of the flavors that um, tea drinkers here are really craving and really taking an interest in, Vinay? Uh, Middle Eastern culture is, is very, very interesting. And uh, if you see the Majlis uh, concept, again, it is Middle Eastern. So we have blended newbie with the Middle Eastern mm -hmm. culture to bring the Majlis concept. And people here are very fond of black tea. And most importantly, 
uh, I'm very happy to see that people in Middle East, they understand tea where they don't uh, add milk to it. That is the best way of, of having tea. And uh, you see the earlier uh, speaker uh, where she was talking about, you know, about the different kind of teas and the health benefit of teas. Uh, I just want to even mention that every batch of newbie teas, a fluoride test is done to check, you know, what is the level of pesticides, mm -hmm. what is the level of chemicals which goes into the tea. And it is not done by any local lab. It's a Eurofin lab, valuation of $19 billion, a French lab. Uh, if you ask me that when we talk about preservation and when we talk about preservation of health mm -hmm, the quality is, there. Is, is one of the most important thing. Whatever goes inside your body is, uh, is really important that every listener should understand that, that uh, purity of, of what we are trying to offer with Newbie as a part of charity, the level of fluorides are by far the least which any tea brand can achieve or has a vision to achieve mm -hmm. since we being a charity it's a mission for humanity it's a mission for because you see with tea the biggest sufferer are the ladies are the children the elderly people by drinking a bad tea or a poor quality of tea is like a slow poison so as a brand our main function is to educate people is to educate the masses that it's not about you know drinking a new VT it's about knowing what you are drinking mm -hmm. and at the end of the day it is it is affecting your own health and the health of your family tea has got highest amount of nutrients antioxidant but it should be a fine tea and it should be enjoyed, and that's exactly what we're enjoying this afternoon. Thank Absolutely. you so, so much, as I said, for welcoming us, for educating us. Um, I am very much enjoying my jasmine. I might try something else after four o'clock today because we're at the finest boutique when it comes to these beautiful teas. And we do urge you to come down and visit, have a tasting, educate yourself on some of the beautiful blends here at the New Beat Tea Boutique. Because the Nation Tower in Abu Dhabi, and there is the Majlis at the back, as we discussed earlier, for tastings, for business meetings, for socialising. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to be here. And if you want a little sneak peek of what this space is like, head over to our Instagram stories. It's at Dubai I 1038FM. We're talking trauma this afternoon, so a bit of a trigger warning. I'm sure some of the topics we'll be touching on could be upsetting, but I think incredibly valuable to be having this conversation, especially with someone with such an interest in it. In conversation now with Elaine Machen. She is a psychologist and a trauma specialist at Sage Clinics. Hi, hi. Elaine, thank you for being with us. I really do appreciate your time and your expertise, as I said, in an area that a lot of people don't really want to think about, but perhaps so many of us have been touched by trauma in, in various ways and in various severities. So before we because the messages I've had through social media and also um, talk about some treatment as well. I'd love if you wouldn't mind by giving us a bit of a definition by what you mean when we talk about trauma. Hi, Helen. So uh, when we talk about trauma, we are talking about psychological trauma where a person is experiencing a very stressful or distressing event where danger to self or someone else is being threatened. It could be actual danger or it could be a threatened um, mm -hmm. threat of it. And so, you know, with that, there's many different ways that this could be. This could be through abuse, through various kinds. It could be through an accident, a life-threatening illness. Um, we even see such cases, cases such as bullying as well um, mm -hmm. and uh, different aspects of that. Um, Lane, maybe this you, you, maybe you're the person that I need to speak to about this, but I've always wondered why two people can have in the exact same situation and let, let's use a car accident as an example and they can be affected so differently you know one person can really carry that trauma and have some really distressing side effects you know have phobia around getting behind the wheel of a car maybe have nightmares intrusive thoughts you know kind of real ptsd symptoms and the other person can be relatively unscathed by exactly the same incident what do we know about that kind of circumstance yeah that's a great question and um that really shows that 
uh, trauma is a subjective experience. And so what mm-hmm. we mean by that, just like you said, two people could go through and experience the same event, but both have different um, outcomes and symptoms of that. So one person could be able, their brain would be able to adapt and cope with the experience. So they were able to process and understand what happened. The other person's brain kind of goes into this um, state where we call a freeze state, um, and they are unable to process that experience. And so then afterwards, they're developing those symptoms, just like you were saying about, you know, uh, being fearful of driving, uh, intrusive thoughts, maybe flashbacks where they feel like they're in that experience themselves. And it's basically our brain's way of being able to cope with that experience. And Mm -hmm. sometimes what our brain does is that when we're in that experience, Afterwards, it still feels like we're in that experience, and our brain mm-hmm. kind of tells us we're still there, even though we're not. Um, I also wanted to ask you about a bit about, I guess, the hierarchy of trauma, mm-hmm. um, and why having well being validated is, is I guess, is so so important. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Peter Levine, who's a real expert when it comes to trauma healing, says trauma is not what happens to us, but what we hold inside in the absence of an empathetic witness. And I wondered if you could speak to that. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think it's about, you know, what happens to us when we experience that. You know, I, I work on a lot of uh, body-based approaches as well and understanding how, you know, the traumatic experience and the things that we've gone through in life also get stored in our body, which is mm-hmm. stored in how we react, our emotions. Are we able to regulate them? Are we having feelings of such intensity there and you know it's about processing what's happening to us on you know so many different levels you know we could go into how you know our brain and nervous system is able to kind of respond to that Um, but it, it all comes back to it comes down to the emotional level that we're on. What about in children? Um, because we've had a number of messages talking about neglect actually in childhood and how mm-hmm. that's affected people today. Um, so we're going to come to that um, after half past four because up next we are going to be hearing from Natalie who recently shared her experience with us following an attack. Um, so a bit of a trigger warning on that. Um, we are going to keep Elaine Machen with us this afternoon as we talk about some of, as she's saying, the kind of body-based healing techniques and treatments. So if you do have a question for her regarding a trauma that you've been through or perhaps support someone in your life do stay with us we are going to go to the text line in just a few minutes and you can of course be completely anonymous 4001 you can use your ARN play app and you've got the whatsapp too up next we're hearing from some woman who has been through something truly truly horrendous but has come out the other side and wants to raise awareness this content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment healthy habits on afternoons with Helen Farmer Joining us now to talk about her experience and one that some people might find upsetting to listen to. So I just want to give you a little warning there. But someone I'm incredibly grateful for sharing what she's been through and and ultimately how she's been coping since and is moving forward now is Natalie Hoare, who's going to be talking about something that happened a matter of decades ago, actually, Natalie. Um, Are you able to tell us what happened on that night and exactly how long ago it was? Yeah, exactly. It was actually 24 years ago. Uh, So it's quite some time ago, as you mentioned to your listeners. Um, And it was actually during the day, which is, uh, I guess, not usually the the case. So when we're talking about instances of abuse and and the like, you usually find that they happen. A lot of people think they happen at night. Um, But for me, mine actually took place in the workplace. So I was actually working. I was uh, at an off-site event and I was helping bring together a function. Um, and for us, uh, the, the facility uh, at the function room was in one area and then to go anywhere else, whether it be outside, we had to go outside to use the facilities, which is where I actually, my abuse took place. And it wasn't dark, it wasn't a lot of the times a lot of people have some type of, of I guess, view of how these instances take place. But for mine, it was daytime. The alley that I had to go down to access the facilities was lit. And so it just occurred in an everyday, ordinary circumstance. Um, And so I went to use the facilities and it was an opportunistic uh, attack whereby um, he, he was a male. 
he must have just been there at the time. I unfortunately was there as well. Our paths crossed. So the facilities were a distance enough away and the attack took place distance enough away for the perpetrator to feel safe in order to undertake that attack. And so I guess the reason I came out was because I actually was thinking that we need to try and do a little bit more, I feel, than what we're currently doing in making employees feel safe mm-hmm. in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I am of the view that had I have had someone with me and it was company policy that if we go off-site, that wherever we go, we are chaperoned or we have someone with us, that that attack would not have taken place. It was mm-hmm. definitely opportunistic. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for sharing that. And I'm so sorry that it, that it happened. You, as you say, it's it's been 24 years since that happened and you didn't report it at the time. And everyone, of course, has their own reasons for taking things forward or keeping things private. And are you able to explain the reasons behind that decision um, after the, the immediacy of the of the attack? Absolutely. Um, everybody responds to these types of circumstances circumstances extremely differently Um, and you respond with the tools that you best have in your toolkit so your resilience is really important when it comes to how you respond to this. I actually put my head in the sand and the way that I went about it was pretend it didn't even happen. Deny, deny, deny. Exactly. Deny was the way that I felt most comfortable in dealing with the situation Mm -hmm. at the age that I was and at the time that that incident took place. I think I'd respond a lot differently today. Um, But as a younger person and who was not in any way, shape or form prepared for what had taken place, I basically went back to work and put a a face on that that nothing had occurred. Um, I still get goosebumps talking about that now. Um, But that was pure denial as though nothing had had occurred Mm -hmm. and my colleagues knew none the wiser. I also... Uh, I, so I now know after 24 years of, of sort of going through my own process and journey, it's only been 12 months that I've gone through the therapy that I needed to actually get the assistance in order to, to speak about this quite calmly. Um, but I also now know that basically it, it was me protecting myself the best way that I knew how because mm. I didn't want to relive it. Of course. Um, and that's what I've been doing for 24 years is try not to relive this. It's, it's really bottle this and put it in a place where it's okay in the body to, to hold on to and not ever go back there again. But unfortunately, life isn't like that. Unfortunately, life mm. has a way of those things coming back up and, 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 and after a series of incidents, it actually was time for me to face it full. I think your reaction is far from um, far from uncommon. I think a lot of women would respond in the same way of if I downplay this, it's not a big deal and I am okay. Um, And there is an element of that. But as you say, there's also an element of of self-preservation of you not wanting to be examined or questioned or doubted through any kind of reporting process. And I think there's been you know, historically a huge, huge issue with that when it comes to women reporting sexual assaults and attacks because, unfortunately, they're often the ones having to defend and justify themselves rather than it being the perpetrator that's, that's you know, Question. re- really questioned. Yes. And yeah. this, even with the most, you know, rational, intelligent women, can plant the seed of doubt in their own mind even when there's no doubt about what happened. And that underreporting is, you know, there is something intrinsically broken about about the whole process of, of re- reporting and um well you know getting getting justice there, there really there really really is and when we talk about things being common you know i just watched prima facie the other night which is an incredible one woman play starring jo- jodie comer which looks at um a barrister um defense barrister who defends um people who've been accused of sexual assault and then she's assaulted herself and it's her examining really how broken that system is um but yes. also the numbers that she talks about in the play which come from uk stats is that you know one in one in three women is going to be sexually assaulted at some point and i believe that to be true it's a horrible horrible statistic um but i think Absolutely. it's i think and, there's and so, so much shame attached to, to it that is definitely the case so when it comes to reporting and, and the numbers, I often look at numbers and I just think that that is just not a true picture of where things are at. Mm-hmm. One in three is horrific enough. One in three women is horrific enough. 
Um, but unfortunately, uh, I sort of, uh, I did actually put out a comment to say me too. And so that's as, high, that's as high level as it got at my point in, in time when me too came out. But I, I also was so felt my instance didn't really count for some reason when that me too came out because it was like, there was multiple occasions. There was lots of things that took place. There was times that people didn't even say anything and none of that information was gathered from me too it was just a hashtag yes this is common it's more common than what people are thinking mm. and that was definitely something that we probably did need to raise uh, and i guess now I, some women are feeling a little bit more safer in the fact that they can raise this issue because they know that it is more common than perhaps they may have thought Absolutely. and so it, they're not feeling as secluded which i felt at the time as well you do feel extremely alone particularly when you don't report it and you don't seek the support and so one of the things looking back i wish at least i told somebody because i didn't tell anyone i i was in so much oh, in denial me. that i didn't even tell a friend my mother nobody nobody knew and it wasn't until i married that i actually told my, my husband and unfortunately, he's the one that has to deal with the the consequences of the trauma that's been held so long in my body, which is which plays out when it comes to intimacy in our relationship, which has been a really difficult thing. But I'm actually enjoying now moving forward and, and unveiling this new person that uh, is has started the healing process. Healthy Habits. On Afternoons with Helen Farmer. We are talking trauma on the line this afternoon with Elaine Machen, psychologist and trauma specialist at Sage Clinics. And we heard earlier there from Natalie Hora, who'd been through a horrendous experience a number of years ago and is only now starting to work through what she calls the healing process. Um, Elaine, I want to go to the text line um, and hopefully we can help out people that have been in touch this afternoon on this topic. Um, as I said, you can get in touch completely you know, anonymously if you prefer. It's absolutely fine. You don't need to, uh, you don't need to be putting your name on that if you want to get in touch and indeed share any of your insights your advice or what you're struggling with this is your chance just saying um, I had a traumatic birth six years ago and often get flashbacks it's left me feeling very fragile and I worry that I'm passing my anxiety down to my son I'm also keen for another baby is it too late to seek treatment and what would your expert recommend Jess, I think a traumatic birth is something that absolutely needs more attention and certainly more help for the women and indeed families that have been through that. For Jess, you know, she's saying it's six years ago. Is is it okay? Is it effective to seek um, treatment now? And as she's saying, what kind of treatment do you think would be suitable? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it is effective at any point in someone's life to seek treatment. And, you know, you know, we talk about early intervention and how, you know, that can help with the process, you know, to, you know, such an extent. But at any point that you're um, having these issues, she's talking about having flashbacks, you know, worried about upcoming, um, um, you know, birthing issues as well. Um, definitely come and seek treatment, come and see a psychologist to help you kind of reprocess what happened before mm -hmm. and that traumatic experience, which is going to help you kind of prepare yourself for any future um, related issues, as well as help you right now and what you're feeling and your emotions and also being able to help yourself um, when modeling that to your child. I think the, the issue for so many people, we, we didn't really delve into it, but this idea mm -hmm. of kind of the, the hierarchy of, of trauma and grief mm -hmm. is that, especially when it comes to a birth, um, th there's often this kind of really misplaced consolation of like, at least the baby's healthy, which completely devalues what that right. mum might have been mm -hmm. through. Um, so, and I think for many people, if they have been through something like that, and it could have been on earlier, you know, a, a car accident, an incident, I guess. Is it where do you start? You know, do you go and see your family doctor? Do you go straight to a psychologist? You know, if you think you need medication, do, do you go to a psychiatrist? I think that not knowing puts off a lot of people of you know actually reaching out and getting the help that they need. So I'm hoping you can kind of demystify that process for us a little bit there, Elaine, as a, as a psychologist. Um, can you explain what might happen if someone, you know, such as Jess, comes to you to talk about what, what they've been through and how do you start to put together a programme of treatment and management for some of the symptoms they might be experiencing? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So, you know, I think the first time that a, 
uh, a person comes to see me as well, we're going to be um, discussing, you know, what it is that they're having issues with, what are they wanting to work on, and we kind of formulate a treatment plan and treatment goals for them where they're in control of that process. Um, so, you know, different recommendations of, that I would uh, suggest would be different types of therapy, which we can go into, mm-hmm. um, related to EMDR and DBT specifically for myself. Um and I can get into those if yeah, you would like. Yeah, because they just sound yeah. like letters to me, Elaine. Talk. Yeah, I've, of course. Put, tell, tell, let's start with, uh, with did, you say, did you say it was EMDR? Yeah. Tell, tell us about that. What does it stand for? Right. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And this is a evidence-based psychotherapy that is widely known as the best treatment for PTSD. Um, it is also a treatment for different areas of uh, panic, anxiety, phobias, um, and what this is, it's the type of therapy where it's not a talking therapy. And, you know, I think a lot of people also um, feel, you know, that like a shame and they feel fear with, oh, I don't want to come in and have to like say all these things. Like, I, yeah. I can't do that. And relive something. That, yeah. You know, that, that, yeah. That, that's a big deal for a lot of people, understandably. Exactly. And so, you know, the great thing about EMDR is we don't have to go and talk through it. What it is, it's a bio, it does bilateral stimulation of the brain. So what that means is right to left side stimulation. And this can be done through eye movements. It can be done through audio. It can be done through tactile, physical. And what it does, it helps the brain to reprocess what they went through before um, in a way that helps heal. It's actually a part, um, if you look into it, it's related to what happens to the brain when we go through REM sleep, um, which is an interesting concept as well, when our brain does the healing. So it's a really great resource um, and, you know, therapy tool for clients who have gone through, you know, trauma in that, you know, they can reprocess this information in a safe place um, and not be able to have to just talk and talk and talk about the experience. Um, Elaine, I'm going to try and get as much out of you as possible because yeah. I'm loving talking to you, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about types of trauma. Mm-hmm. I've heard of complex trauma, I've heard of intergenerational trauma. How important is it to get an understanding of the type of trauma that you've been through or are experiencing? And can you give us a little breakdown on the types? Yeah, so um, with we know we talk about complex trauma, um, and that's related to we think about single incident trauma, which is uh, one traumatic event that has happened to someone, and then complex trauma, which is different events. It could be the same or a different type, but they happen over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And you know, I oftentimes I see clients that have complex trauma, and what that means is they had probably early childhood experiences and some experiences in adolescence and through adulthood, um, and. You know, this impacts as well um, how a person is able to cope. You know, it impacts, you know, their relationships. It impacts in so many different ways their behaviors, how they're able to process and, and you know, think through information. Um, so, you know, it really depends with that. But complex trauma could be a whole other topic we could talk about. We will um, have you back to discuss it. We absolutely yep. will. Um, I want to see if we can help out some people that are listening right now. Um, yep. We've had a message here, 4001. No names saying thank you for raising this as a topic my husband was neglected as a child and while he's a loving man he has his angry hurtful moments which i believe to be related to his upbringing would welcome any ways to support him and break the cycle before we have kids whether that is uh, reading podcasts or the type of therapy that can help with this so really looking to support someone who's um she's saying neglected as a child and i think that raises a really interesting point is that you know it's not just a trauma that an individual you know when you are with, um, you know, you have a family with somebody, you know, maybe it's a parent or a child. It's something that can affect the whole family. And she's saying there about breaking the cycle before having children. Any advice for anyone that's looking to support someone in their life who's been through trauma? Yeah, and you know, I think that's really great that, you know, they're that they already can recognize and they have that awareness that, oh, I need to break the cycle, that, you know, these things are affecting me and I don't want it to go on, you know, in, to, my, to my children. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think the first thing with that, you have that awareness and with that awareness, that's the point to seek help and go see a psychologist, go and be able to like reprocess what actually happened to you, what you've experienced and how to, you know, emotionally handle these things. So that way, you know, you can model that for your child. And that way, you know, um, you can kind of help your 
your child as well adapt through those experiences um, without kind of reliving your own experiences. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And thank mm-hmm. you, Bee, for raising that as a topic. And I'm going to squeeze in one last question. I think it's a really, really important one. Anonymous message that's come in saying, please no name. Um, I was in an abusive relationship and I have what I now worry is something of a trauma bond with him even years later. How can I finally escape and would really welcome some advice for starting afresh? We've only got a couple of minutes, but I'd love if you wouldn't mind maybe addressing what a trauma bond might be and any advice for this listener. Yeah, so trauma bond, that's kind of been a a buzzword going around lately. Um, And, you know, what that means is that it's looking at earlier attachments, right? So that person's earlier attachments in life, um, whether it was with parents or caregivers in that interaction and what was happening in their life. And then what happens is that when we get older, we get into relationships where we're basically um, in this situation Um, where either, you know, we're both triggering each other through a traumatic experience that happened previously in our life. So a lot of times when people talk about trauma bonding, you're re-triggering yourself um, and your partner based off of your experiences. And that's because that's kind of a sign, basically, that you need to kind of reprocess and help heal that aspect that you're going through in order to not, you know... um, to have that awareness so that way you know when I'm being triggered first mm-hmm. off and when I'm getting triggered. We've run out of time, Elaine. Thank mm-hmm. you so, so much for thank your you, insights Helen. today. We've had some really, really, and thank you for everyone who got in touch as well. I really do value your your honesty and your vulnerability there on such a difficult topic. But Elaine, I think we've really just scratched the surface. I'd love to explore some of this further with you. But in the meantime, if you weren't get, able to get someone's message today or they didn't feel comfortable messaging in, um, what's the best way of getting in touch with you and perhaps exploring this issue of trauma further in person? Yeah, so I work at Sage Clinics in downtown Dubai. Um, so they can give, um, you can go on our website at uh, sage-clinics.com um, and you can get all the information there. You can go with our phone number, which is 4575-5684. Um, give a call or you can get an email um, and, you know, just get in touch saying that you would like to, you know, book an appointment with Elaine and I would be more than happy to uh, support you in that process. Elaine Machen, thank you so, so much, psychologist there at Sage Clinic. We will absolutely have another chat on this topic and many others of which you are an expert in. We're talking manifesting manifestation uh, in the show this afternoon. This term becoming more and more commonplace. Lots of social media coverage of it. People talking about how they got what they wished for, what they longed for through the power of manifestation. But can you really will good things into your life? And joining us now to discuss is business psychologist and certified executive coach Samara Pope with us. Samara, thank you for being with us. Before we talk into the hows, I'd love you to explain the what's. For anyone that's not familiar with the term manifesting, what do you mean by it? Hello, Helen. Well, the promise of manifestation is that if you think, it will happen. If you ask, you will receive. The universe is a magical place where you are in total control and all-powerful to bring about whatever you want. Now, that is a very comforting thought. But there is a dark side to manifestation, which is mental Mm -hmm. health disorders and psychosis. It doesn't always work. And for a lot of people, the concept of whatever you think becomes your reality is a disaster because think of people with anxiety <laughs> disorders or OCD. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. And it doesn't always work that way. We have a confirmation bias to mm. select events that we believe manifested or happened because we thought about them and we delete those that didn't work out the way we wanted them. So, so the how does, the, how does this link? It, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack in this, but a lot of people are really jumping on this trend. It's super popular on TikTok. Lots of people Absolutely. talking about the lucky, the lucky girl trend. Why do you think it's mm-hmm. so appealing as a concept? Well, here we have to go into a bit of depth psychology, and I'll explain a bit. And a lot of people would identify with this. Now, think of us as infants. When when a baby is born, when we're born we have this sense that we are connected to everything, whatever we want, we get whenever we want. There is no concept of separation. Now, as part of growing up, as part of our development, there's something called the realization principle in psychology. The realization that we're actually separate. 
the mother is not connected to us, we can't get whatever we want, Mm -hmm. whenever we want, we start developing a a critical thinking side called the ego around two years old, which starts questioning, hey, wait a minute, I'm not the center of the universe. (laughs) I I don't get whatever I want, whenever I want. It's what we call the terrible twos. Mm -hmm. It's referring to toddlers adjusting to the reality of not being able to get whatever they want, whenever they want is the transition from magical thinking to adult reality. Now, for most of us, we are able to negotiate this part of our development with ease. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, it's a shock to the system that I am really not all powerful. They carry this this pain, this grief, sometimes lifelong, and they don't know why. There's a sadness, there's a despair, that life didn't work out the way they thought it would. Telling these people, no, no, you're right. You were always right. You are connected to the universe. You can do whatever you want and get whatever you want just by thinking about it. It's a very powerful and appealing concept. Mm -hmm, But a dangerous one. (laughs) It can be. It can be. But I think think a lot of people love the idea of having some element of control over their life. And sometimes it's just tied to a bit of positive thinking, a bit of hope, a a bit of you know, let's, let's have a, have a goal as such. And I think this is, this is kind of popular right now in, in a time of, you know, quite you know, drastic uncertainty, certainly over the last couple of years. Um, have you ever manifested anything, Samara, do you think? Absolutely, yes. But when we say manifestation, what, you know, the concept of manifestation is based on a bit of science. Now, we've mm-hmm. got to unpack the science. But yes, there are ways in which you can visualize your goal, clarify what you want, write about it, think about it. Mm-hmm. And there are certain parts of our brain, it's called the psychic structure. If one of those is our autopilot, another is our identity system. Mm-hmm. If we are programming our autopilot and our narrative identity to accomplish certain goals, visualize the kind of person we want to be, the kind of behavior we would like to embody. Yes, we are able to bring about change. We are able to affect our behavior, and that affects, to an extent, behavior of people around us. I want to unpack this a little bit more. Samara, when we come back, we're going to be talking about how people manifest and get some thoughts from people listening today. Um, I love this. Maddie says, I manifest empty car park spaces all the time. Um, So I have a vision board for bigger things. It's not about spirituality for me, but focusing on my goals. Maddie, I do this with car park spaces as well. And just as Samara was saying, you know, sometimes we've got this confirmation bias that yes, there it is, it's outside the office, I can get parked, and then there's probably nine times out of 10 where I'm driving around for 20 minutes. Have you manifested anything successfully in the past, or do you think it's all a bunch of hokum? That's next. Joining us live on the line now to talk manifesting, manifestation is business psychologist and certified executive coach, Samara Pope. Taking your questions, hearing your experiences on this, um, and Hanan saying it's a, manifesting is a term that creates comfort. We don't manifest, we set a goal, focus on it and work towards it. That's the magic. As a coach with over 15 years experience, that's what I found with all my clients. Always interesting topics. Thank you for that. Um, Samara, let's, let's talk about the hows because as I said earlier, I sometimes, to my mind, manifest a car park space when I'm driving around outside the building. <laughs> How do other people do it? And I'm, I'm just living in hope there that suddenly I'm going to see the red lights of a reversing car and I'll, I'll have my chance. But for people that want to do it, I guess, in a more formulaic way, what, what are some of the steps that you've seen in the past? Scientifically, there are two concepts which prove some of the ideas behind manifestation, but we have to be careful to separate reality from fiction and illusion. We have the concept of a collective subconscious. For example, in a forest, we used to think that every tree has its own root, but now we know that the trees are connected underground um, in a network and they communicate with each other. Similarly, we are thought to have a collective subconscious. We communicate with other beings and attract them in our lives. Depending on our frequency and our vibe, this is just the scientific, um, the layman's term for our Mm -hmm. emotional makeup. So this is how you will see you tend to attract people towards you with a similar kind of um, emotional experience, upbringing, bringing and you tend to repeat experiences or relationships so 
here is where we program or reprogram our, our subconscious by imagining the language of the subconscious is pictures and images and movies. So you, you imagine yourself as the kind of person you want to be, the kind of person you want to attract, the opportunity you want to attract. And our autopilot seems to bring that into our reality. This is also something scientifically um, proven by a Swiss psychoanalyst called Carl Jung. He coined the term synchronicity or meaningful coincidences because he found that whenever he thought of something in a deeply meditative state, he found that that would occur or he would see it or it would manifest, as we call it, in his in his surroundings, in his reality. And this is just some of the structures of the brain, the psychic structures like the executive function, the identity narrative that we are reprogramming using our executive function, which is, again, clarify our goals, have our objectives, visualize what we want, be clear on what we want. This is different to mm -hmm. delusional thinking or psychosis. So here's the, Good the, distinction. the division. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, Derek's saying, like I was going to get to a few messages tomorrow. Derek's saying, I don't believe things magically come from the universe according to the energy you invest in imagining them. I believe that you see opportunities, invest energy, pay mm -hmm. attention to the things you're looking out for, mm -hmm. and you'll be happier if you think happy thoughts too. Um, Pooja is saying, mm -hmm. um, I love this. I usually tell a close friend um, what I want to have, simple things like getting something to eat or something for free. It's become a reality mm -hmm. within a few days or even a few minutes. I don't know if it's effective, if it's effectively manifesting and um, I just say it without giving it serious thought um, mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about gratitude and the link to manifestation what, what do you think happens in our brain when we perhaps incorporate those two well gratitude first first of all um, helps us realize what we have and it reduces anxiety um, and a lot of other negative automatic thoughts that we have a lot of people have an auto auto set pilot towards thinking that they are deprived or they are um, in some way not getting enough or what they deserve. So gratitude kind of changes that dial and gives us a positive confirmation bias. So we start looking at the good in our lives instead of the negative. So it changes our shift. It changes our focus. It is, a, again, a kind of confirmation bias. Now, confirmation bias, what is that? Let's get into that. It's when we take from reality things that adjust to our inner beliefs and we delete everything else. So gratitude is simply mm -hmm. is simply shifting focus to the good and deleting things that are not so good. So we're overly focused on the positive. Of course that helps with our well being, with our mood, with reducing anxiety or depression or other uh, negative mental health issues. So yes, it definitely helps. And that also means that we are... Um, so I, I wanted to ask you about the um, the law mm -hmm. of attraction because we saw the secret mm -hmm. franchise. There were books, mm -hmm. films, absolutely, DVDs yeah. made absolutely piles of money. I had friends who were mm -hmm. looking to mm -hmm. find love and they would start sleeping only on one side of the bed so there was space in the bed for somebody else and yeah. all, all of this, which I have to say raised a few eyebrows. Um, how mm -hmm. is, it, is it different, the law of attraction, just, just for definition's sake? Well, again, it is connected and um, it is the same concept that the law of attraction says that if you think about it, if you feel it, if you imagine that you already have it and, and thank and express gratitude for it, you will get it. Mm -hmm. But the reality is very different. Things don't always work out the way we want them. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So confirmation bias says we just look at the cases where they do work out and we delete the cases where they don't work out. But you've, you've touched on a very important point, Helen, about love relationships. Here we have a lot of um, issues, a lot of mental health issues with manifesting love or the concept of attracting love. Um, to give you an example in psychology, we look at people who had a breakup of a relationship. The people who were able to move on and just uh, carry on with their lives versus the people who experienced prolonged grief or sadness or depression following the breakup. What's the difference between these two people? The person who experienced prolonged grief and sadness is the person who was actually applying the concept of law of attraction and manifestation, meaning in their mind, they were playing a movie of having a future with this partner, with their ex-partner, 
which mm-hmm. now turned out to be false. So they are unable to reconcile. Isn't that interesting? Is this and yeah, the kind of the gap between expectation and reality, and to my mind, that's Absolutely. often, you know, where happiness and happiness, you know, can be can be made and uh, made and unmade. Really fascinating talk. I've had lots of messages on this. And um, if anyone wants to read more about it, look into the psychology of manifestation, the law of attraction. Is there any recommendations of readings or podcasts that you uh, would like to give a shout out to, Samara? Well, I definitely would recommend reading about Carl Jung and his work. He actually has a certain, a several books on this, on synchronicity and meaningful coincidence. Here he goes into the science of it with examples of how things that he was thinking about occurred in his life. And it's fascinating. And also about the collective subconscious. If you study the scientific part of the executive brain, the collective subconscious, identity narrative, you will really go into the scientific part of understanding it and how to apply it versus the more um, illusionary science of law of attraction, which can <laughs> the be tic- The TikTok side of it. Samara, thank you. I think really, really nicely said by Cheryl here, where energy goes, sorry, where attention goes, mm-hmm. energy flows. Um, Samara Pope, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time today. Likewise. Really appreciate it. If anyone else is manifesting around Media City, stay away from my car park spaces, please. We are talking health on the show this afternoon. We are going to be talking about some of the health benefits of tea as well. But right here, right now, we are marking um, an awareness day. It is World Hearing Day in a few weeks. Um, sorry, in a few days. It's actually March 3rd. So every day this is there to raise awareness on how to prevent deafness and hearing loss, promote ear and hearing care around the world. Now, according to the World Health Organization, ear and hearing problems are among some of the most common encounters in the community. Around 60% of those can be identified and addressed at a primary level of care. We're joined now by Dr. Verma, an ENT specialist at Medcare Medical Center at JBR. Uh, Dr. Vindad Verma, how are you and uh, how is your hearing? Oh, fine, Helen. Uh, good to <laughs> good. be connected with you now. Let's... Um Let's go get on with the agenda. What can I convey well, to I my... I find this a really, really fascinating topic because I think when I remember having hearing tests as a, ch- as a child, you know, they, we used to have a doctor that would come into school and we'd have to identify the beeps that we could hear and it was picked up all quite at an early level. And then as we get older, we start to, you know, perhaps lose, lose some of that hearing. My father-in-law is very hard of hearing and sometimes I think chooses to forget to put his hearing aid in. So it's a topic close to home for us. Um, but I wonder, as adults, how do we screen for our hearing and hearing loss? Uh, so uh, quite uh, simply, basically, if a person is having difficulty in hearing, uh, it could be either in uh, the loudness where you can't perceive any sound because of uh, the sound not reaching your ear because of some blockages to the ear, which is a temporary phenomenon, or it could be a nerve-related deafness which creeps upon you because of some diseases or due to loud ex- exposure to loud noises or a blast somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. following some kind of an accident, many such issues which can result in early degeneration of the nerves. So uh, when you're talking of the old age, of course, we are talking of a sensory neural hearing loss, which uh, can be called like the, when you lose uh, eye, uh, the vision issues with reading, like presbyopia, this is called presbyacusis, where the person will have uh, can make out there somebody has said something, but quite, mm-hmm. quite can't follow what the person actually said. So mm-hmm. it's the speech discrimination which becomes an issue, and this probably needs AIDS. Whereas the illnesses which are there could be because of infection, because of any uh, developmental problems in uh, smaller children. So they are tackled as per the cause of the deafness. So in case the child is born without problems, we are talking about uh, giving them AIDS early in uh, mm-hmm. either uh, uh, which are body uh, body worn or some kind of a thing which can be fixed. I'm talking of cochlear glands here. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we are talking in adulthood, we are talking about infections and allergies which need or uh, even simple stories where your nose and the um, uh, throat is involved and you land up flying with otitic barotrauma. So these are pressure changes while diving. So these are the problems which I can think of in adulthood uh, related to sports injuries, related to loud noise exposures and or infections, of course, which is across all ages. 
Dr. Verma, can we talk about loud noises? I, I say this to you with a microphone in my hand and headphones on my ears, and I do feel quite sensitive to noise, and I'm sure a lot of my colleagues do as well after work, you know, in radio, there's a drummer. Um, what, what steps do you think we should take um, in our children and in indeed as adults to protect our ears from loud noises? I have a friend that does her spin class with, with earplugs in. Is, is, are these kind of measures necessary? Yeah, so I hear it from uh, the, uh, all the time from people that they have to wear earplugs before they sleep because of the ambient noises. You can imagine the noise which is there when you are standing on a main uh, highway like uh, Sheikh Zayed or something. The, the the noise levels are literally deafening. So if you are paying attention, otherwise when you are up and about your own way, you don't even bother. Like Likewise, if you are going to a, or a club or a discotheque, the, the levels are high and I'm not even going where there are shows being held and where there are exposure mm -hmm. to loud uh, blaring music on those super huge um, um, speakers which don't have to be super huge now because of the technology development but they, they right. take levels up to um, 120, 140, 180 decibels which are uh, considered all um, harmful in the long run. So there is uh, definitely uh, documentation that there is a noise induced temporary uh, threshold shift or a permanent threshold shift depending on how much time of exposure and how loud the sound was. And then people can uh, actually have a permanent damage if they are exposed to loud noises for a long time. Now, uh, there is, um, you are supposed to wear hearing aids when you are doing, uh, you are supposed to wear hearing defenders if you are involved in certain activities um, which mm -hmm. uh, create noise. But when you are talking of normal social gatherings and uh, the fact that people use a lot of uh, ear plug, ear, um, uh, uh, what do you call them, um, headphones and all that. I think if the volume is maintained at a, a decent 40, level of 40 on the on the marker, should be enough uh, exposure for an hour or so, and then you give a break for another five to ten minutes. So listening to loud music on long-term basis and a volume which is 60 or above or 80 would be detrimental in the long run. Dr. Verma, I've got, I had a question here from DC on the text line saying, asking about unblocking ears. Now, this is something my dad takes great pleasure in telling me all about, going for ear <laughs> syringing. Um, yeah. We're told that you shouldn't, you shouldn't put a Q-tip in your ear, you shouldn't put anything in your ear smaller than your yeah. elbow. Um, so yeah. when, what, what do you recommend if, if ears are temporarily blocked? Yeah, so this is, this is my favorite topic because it is such a common thing. I don't even call it like an illness. You know, it's like when a person goes to the doctor, it's more like a facial or a haircut. You are pulling out dead uh, cerumen out of the ear. So good old days, we used to syringe that. I mean, it's not that people don't do it now, but we prefer to now suck it out using a small minor suction, more like a vacuum cleaning. And if the uh, uh, cerumen is uh, made soft with some uh, de-wax eardrops or solid wax eardrops, then it's all the more easy and um, not an unpleasant experience either for the doctor or the patient. So uh, coming he to the it. use of Q-tips, <laughs> Q-tips should not be used by anybody uh, because it acts like a ram and it, it, it actually pushes the lovely ring provided by nature to trap germs and uh, dust and uh, collapses it into okay. like a chewing gum and pushes it right in. And then people are packing layers Public on Public service layers. announcement, people. Yeah. <laughs> Get your pleasure somewhere else, not from sticking Q-tips in your ear. Dr. Verma, yeah. thank you so much. We've run yeah. out of time, but um, really appreciate your time this afternoon. We'll let you get back to clinic there. Dr. Vinda Verma, ENT specialist from Medcare Medical Centre at JBR. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.